So with all the talk of the Delta variant, Loki, <laughs> I see what you did there. It might delay some uh, upcoming releases. Yep. <laughs> I really hope it doesn't. Including Spider-Man. And Dune. Which I have been. <laughs> <laughs> More importantly. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine if they just actually don't show us the trailer at all and then just delay the Spider-Man film? At least you have a trailer for Dune. Two, it's fact. true. Second trailer was like three and a half minutes too. And you saw like a sneak peek, fifteen minute sneak peek. You've got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> nothing, Derek. Very true. I feel bad. I'm just alone in the dark. Yeah, we'll see what happens. I feel like they wouldn't completely shut everything down, but it's very possible they could delay their movies. Just got that Carnage trailer the other day. All right. Well, we're here to talk about something good. What are we here to talk about? The ghoul. The. <laughs> Not the Green Knight. The Green Knight. <laughs> the new A24 movie. We're big fans of A24 here at the Cult Popcast, as I'm sure you can imagine. That's and, true. And they've done it again. They freaking did it again. They did it. David Lowry, his amazing, beautiful film. Oh, wow. He's directed a lot. He's done a lot of stuff before. Multiple features. So. Is that how you say his name? Lowry? Lowry. Lowry. Yeah. You might know him from directing such films as the live-action Pete's Dragon remake for Disney, which was actually very good. And he also directed a movie called A Ghost Story that came out for A24 about three or four years ago now. It was also very, very good. He did The Old Man with the Gun, too. He also did The Old Man with the Gun, too. Robert Redford. Not the sequel to The Old Man, just The Old Man and the Gun also, as well. Yeah. All pretty good movies. And now he has done... The Green Knight. What a treasure this movie is. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. Gabe, you so thoroughly enjoyed it that you saw it twice. I really liked it. I'll probably see it a third time before its run is done. It's before worth its it. Time is through. Yeah. Yeah, you should. What is The Green Knight? The Green Knight film is based off of an Arthurian poem called Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Some people say Gawain. Gawain. This movie does something really funny where it kind of plays with that name a lot. Everyone's pronouncing it differently, which is sort of funny because of that. I love the way the king pronounced it. He calls him Garwin. (laughs) Young Garwin. Can you give a little bit more history into the poem? Yeah, I can. Okay. So it was a late 14th century Middle English chivalric romance. Chivalric. Chivalric romance. (laughs) And the author of the poem, or the story as it were, is actually unknown. Anonymous. It's unclear. Some would say. But it had, it's one of the larger stories in the Arthurian lore. You know, he's one of King Arthur's round table knights. Hence the sir. He was actually played by Joel Edgerton in the Clive Owen King Arthur from the early 2000s. Oh. I don't know if you ever saw that one. I didn't. But Joel Edgerton is in this one as well as a different character. But yeah, the story, the way chivalric romance works is that it's basically an adventure story of an important part of which is the virtues of the knight or the chivalric virtues, of which there are basically five. And so the poem kind of plays as Sir Gawain, Gawain, Gawain. Gawain is being tested in these five virtues. Yeah, the 
original poem, David Lowry in his film, Lowry, David Lowry fleshed out his adventures a little bit more and added some to the original story. In the original story, I think Sir Gawain moves pretty quickly from the outset of his adventure to the third act of the film, which is the castle, and then meeting the Green Knight. So it doesn't really pick apart the virtues too much, but he is tested in the quality of his character and his virtue. David Lowry definitely put his own spin on the events of the film. Should we talk about what happens in the film? Okay. Sir Gawain is the nephew of the king, who in the story would be Arthur and Camelot. It's sort of, as many things are in this film adaptation, left to be ambiguous who these people are, except for Gawain himself. But he is the nephew of the king, and the king brings him up on a Christmas celebration to speak to him through the machinations of Sir Gawain's witch mother. The king brings him up and he basically talks to him about becoming a great man and potentially taking his spot once as king. And then the Green Knight shambles into the scene once again due to the machinations of the witch mother and presents a challenge to the court, which is destined for Sir Gawain. The Green Knight is... is a mythological creature in this film. In, in the original story, I think he's just actually a Green Knight. <laughs> in this story, the Green Knight is sort of like an Ent. Sounds like one. That also has armor and is sort of like a tree creature. Yeah. A creature. A very cursed individual. And he presents a challenge. The game is to basically exchange blows. Any of the knights could strike him however they wish. And then a year from now, the blow would be returned. The exact same blow. Yes. Which is important. So Sir Gawain jumps up because he has to make a name for himself. and He chops off his head. Yeah, he chops off the green knight's head. <laughs> because the king... His uncle tells him that it's just a game. Yeah. And so he chops off his head. Then, like Sleepy Hollow, he picks up his head and starts laughing and runs out. And he says one year. And that means that uh, in the course of the year, Sir Gawain has to... He's not even a Sir. Gawain has to seek him out uh, in a six-day trek at a green chapel and meet his fate. Whatever that may be, it's unclear. It's intentionally unclear. So he does. A year later, uh, a year of drinking himself into a stupor ensues because he can't handle the stress of what this might mean. And his fame has gone out throughout the land. Yeah, the legend builds around this. So a year goes by and he sets off on his quest to finish the game. And that's where he runs into a bunch of interesting characters and goes through several trials, you could call them, to test his character, his virtues, and eventually ends up meeting the Green Knight again. I don't really want to spoil too much at all. I feel like people should watch this movie, but... So, all along the way, he meets multiple people played by different actors. Gowan is played wonderfully by Dev Patel, who was made popular in the movie Slumdog Millionaire. He's so good. I saw him recently, a few years ago, in a movie called Lion. I was bawling when that movie ended. I don't ever cry like that. And I was crying like a baby at the end of Lion. Alicia Vikander plays sort of his love interest. Her name is Essel, this prostitute that very much wants to be with him. She wants to be his lady. His lady. His lady. And you'll be my man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she's great. And she comes up again as another character. King Arthur is played by who again? Sean Harris, the yeah. villain from Two Mission Impossibles Ago. Right, right, right. He's very good. Yeah. I loved 
how he was portrayed. Not in the film, but in the lore is Guinevere, I think. It's King Arthur's muse, his woman, his lady. Played by Kate Dickey, who was the mom in The Witch. She's worked a lot with Ralph Ineson. They were both in Game of Thrones as well. She was uh, the aunt Stark, mm. who was still breastfeeding her child. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Classic, yeah. So as he treks out, he meets... Scavenger. Like a robber, thief, boy, who is played by that popular... Barry Keoghan. Yeah. He's the one from Eternals, right? Okay. Yeah. And uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer. He's in Dunkirk. He's a great actor. That <laughs> kid. Yeah, he's very sinister vibes, you could say. And so you're immediately unsettled when you see him in this yeah. film. And he comes back around to... Mess things up. To cause antagonism. <laughs> and then we run into Aaron Kellyman as St. Winifred, she was in The Falcon and the Winter Soldier as the lead flag smasher. Yeah, and she was also in the movie Solo. Yes, as Enfys Nest. I looked that up recently because she's very striking visually, and I love the way she was written too. It's yeah. very funny. There's some like drops of comedy spread. Yeah, almost every time you think it's going to get really dark or scary, they actually subvert that with very fast entering dialogue Equip. that like disrupts the tone that was building up to being very scary they don't do it every time <laughs> but they did it multiple times yeah got this whole movie they do and i thought it was really funny i was actually laughing out loud in some parts yeah it's pretty clever not in a corny way it's i think it's done well it's done with extreme brilliance and excellency indubitably <laughs> and then he runs into some other mythical creatures has some fantastical encounter that how friends with a fox he does do that <laughs> and then he finds himself at a house near the end of his journey where he meets joel edgerton the lord of the manor there's two people in the house with him yeah i think it's supposed to be his wife in the story in the film it's not very clear what's happening there the family dynamic but it's fleshed out a lot more in the original story it is his wife and the character joel edgerton plays is infertile so his wife is a little bit resentful of that. Over the course of three days, she tries to seduce Sir Gawain. This seductress kind of wife character is played by the same character, and by the same actress, who played Essel before, Alicia Vikander. In my mind, she's in the movie supposed to be sort of a symbol or like the embodiment of erotic love or sex for him throughout his adventure and his life. That's why I think she plays two different characters that both have to do with his love life and sex life. Yeah, he apparently has a powerful sex drive, Sir Gawain. He sort of fails his virtuous test there. Well, we should say all of these encounters are tests of the virtues, as we had said before, that that's what happens in the poem, and so this happens in the movie. And uh, he essentially befuddles every single one. He doesn't necessarily fail in the classical black and white sense, but he definitely fumbles each one in one way or another, and that ends up sort of causing him to make the decisions that he makes in the end. And essentially, that's what the movie's about. It's about virtue and honor, what it means to be a good 
and decent human being, especially kind of in this sort of pseudo coming of age story. As a young person, we all have those or have had those questions as we try to mature into adulthood and as the lines become grayed as far as what is game and what isn't game, so to speak, in society, that's sort of what he's facing here. And it means even more because he has the potential to become a knight of the round table under his uncle, who is King Arthur, supposedly. So that's sort of like the premise of the whole movie, and uh, I thought it was done very, very well, executed very well. Then he goes to meet his destiny and his fate with the Green Knight. The culmination of his journey. And uh, seek him out, as was the challenge, on Christmas Day a year previous. So, yeah, this was very artistic. Very art house. (laughs) It was basically 100% fantasy, I think, as you had put it before. You know, it reminded me of like an adult fairy tale movie, sort of like Pan's Labyrinth. Mm. And I love those movies. So it's definitely an A plus in my book, especially when they're done well. Guillermo del Toro sort of has had the, had the market on making those sort of adult fairy tale movies. I don't know of many others. I mean, maybe you could say something like Princess Bride or something is like that. But these are much more gritty and real and they kind of play with the ideas of the young growing into adulthood and becoming mature, and they do it in a very adult way. So there's often adult things happening in the movie, and they're very gritty and dark. and Often scary. Yeah, that's what this was. <laughs> I also loved the portrayal of how sort of grimy and real this kind of medieval era looked and felt because that's kind of how I've always imagined it would be. Like you see it often portrayed in movies and it's not as grimy and gritty, but you know, when you see something like this or like in game of Thrones, like it looks so much more realistic because everything's dark and all they have are candles and throw some mud on it. Yeah. Everything's got mud or dirt and grittiness. And I really liked that aspect of it and how it looked and felt as far as like the tone of the movie itself looked so realistic, like so tangible. And I love the use of the color palette and everything was so beautiful. I loved his like cloak of yellow and all the earth tones throughout. And then you had these little pops of color, just beautiful. I really loved how it was directed. Yeah. A big part of that tone too is the camera work. Yeah. The cinematography by Andrew Drells Palermo, who worked with him on a ghost story. Yeah. And he's done some other stuff. That was a total different aspect ratio, too. Very good. And also very, I mean, in my opinion, it was shot very differently. Ghost Story was. And it was a very different movie because it was all one location. And this is sort of an epic. Sort of. An an adventure epic (laughs) where you have multiple locations. You were talking about how the the filmmaking process was pretty grueling for them, right? Yeah. As you can see in the film, it's a pretty exhausting environment to be in. I think it was shot in Ireland. David Lowry has said that it took a toll on him uh, specifically, which is it led to an interesting development when the film was supposed to come out soon and he was moving on to another project. That's when COVID happened. Yeah, he's moving on, by the way, to Peter Pan and Wendy, which is the next Peter Pan movie for Disney, which is going to be probably really good. And he was supposed to jump right onto that after having finished editing this because, by the way, he not only directed it, he produced it, wrote it, and edited this movie himself. So talk about a, either a control freak or a jack-of-all-trades, you know? Yeah, well, he's an auteur. He wants to deliver his vision. 
sure. which is where A24 is great because they probably give him and the other studios that work in that realm, they give the creator a lot of freedom too. Yeah, so COVID hit. Yeah, COVID hit. And then, as he has said, he re-edited the film. He reapproached it with fresh eyes. You know, he got to shake off the fatigue of the shoot because he said he had become a little bit resentful. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit contemptuous relationship he had with his film at the time during his initial edit. And he got to have the rare opportunity to spend some more time with his cut and then finesse it a bit, change it. Uh, You know, who knows? Maybe the people that got to see it before, I'm sure there were some screenings before it was canceled due to COVID. But he got to re-edit the film over the first six months of the pandemic quarantine. And now he's in a, he said he's more comfortable with the way it turned out. So that's pretty interesting. I heard he added a lot and edited things in such a way that made it just pop more. Yeah, absolutely. A very interesting part of that process, I'm sure, because I wanted to throw a lot of love to Daniel Hart's score as the composer of this film. Very good. It was extremely standout to me. Because so much of this film, especially like the whole first act of the film, is put to musical accompaniment, which is, it fascinates me from an editor's perspective because it is literally all put to music. (laughs) Everything from the beginning of the film through meeting the Green Knight and him living that experience, the editing and the score are married so perfectly. I'm really curious what that process was like for the composer revisiting the film. Sure, sure. But yeah, that was the biggest part of establishing the tone for me was the score and the sound design was extremely important in this movie and such a treat to see in a theater. And I'm really glad it was released Mm -hmm. by now, even though I hope it gets the box office it deserves. It should. It definitely deserves it. If you can't tell, we love this movie a lot. And yeah, talking about the sound design a little bit, you had so many crazy things happening you know, when the Green Knight moved, he sounded like an ant, so you heard, like, tree branches creaking and groaning and moving and shifting and dirt being slid and that kind of thing. The first time we see him and he comes into the hall and he dismounts his horse, it sounds like a tree falling. Like, as he's dismounting, the tree is falling, and then as soon as he hits the ground, there's just a thud. And it's such a great introduction to the character and establishing the feeling of this world yeah. and the things you'll come to find in it. Yeah, and you have creatures and things that are making noises that shouldn't make noises. And so the sound design behind all that was very well done. You know, reminded me a lot of some of the noises they created for Jurassic Park back in the day. And like you said, the music was period accurate for some of it. And then the rest of it was very experimental and crazy. And I loved both of it. I loved, you know, how period accurate it was at times and then sort of for the times that you sort of had to suspend your belief then came in the crazy but it was awesome you know the first few musical cues were all good and you know because some movies have music where you hear one song and it's good and then the rest of the songs are sort of throwaway but every new song that was introduced in this movie especially for the first half of it like you were saying were all engaging and interesting and almost sometimes distracting because they were so good from like what you were watching (laughs) you're like you kind of just wanted to sit back and listen to what was happening in your ears and as much as you could see on the screen you know 
I found myself in a trance-like state yeah. for much of this film. Yeah. It was completely enraptured. I think that's what the purpose of it was. Yeah. It has like a somnambulant feel as well. Yeah. The whole story is like a, and you know, a lot of that's due to the narrative. You're not sure exactly what's happening or you're not sure if what you're seeing is actually happening, especially in the middle. Also, the, the costuming and the production design in this film are incredible. Yep. And the attire is not just beautiful, but it plays an important part in the story. Like, for instance, the sash that he's given not once but twice over the course of the film is a very important plot device a lot of the crew in this and the cast as well are all alums for a24 so it was fun to see them all get back together and make another piece of art yeah i love the rumination on death especially there's a scene towards the end where alicia vikander's character as the lady of the manor Mm -hmm. gives a monologue like a soliloquy about the green, the color of green. We've talked a lot about the themes of the film revolving around virtue and quality of character and honor, but a lot of the film was really about death, too, and, and mortality. That is and true. a meditation on the color green, not as a life-bringing <laughs> color, which is usually how it's associated, you know, with new life, but in the context of not just the story, but of the earth as a thing and men in their relationship with it. When men die, they are retaken by the green. So... In this film, green was a color of death and rot and decay, which was a really interesting perspective for me, anyway. And yeah. so Alicia Vikander's character towards the end of the film has this absolutely captivating <laughs> monologue. Yeah, in a movie that doesn't have a lot of dialogue, she, I think, had the longest strain of dialogue in the whole movie. It was, it was really powerful. And she delivers it like a champ. Yeah. And then him meeting his fate at the end with the Green Knight, whatever that may be, really makes you think on like, especially as an extension of the themes of like living a life of honor and character, what that means for your death. If you'll accept your mortality as a good man and be able to live your life to the fullest, or if you'll try to escape your fate and live, you know, in corruption and deceit and greed. Yeah, I was going to say that oftentimes when we're faced with death or the idea of the fact that we may not be living any longer, that often forces us to confront, you know, who and why we are who we are. And I think amongst the testing of his virtues and being constantly confronted with his decisions, it being that a person's decisions and actions make up life and make you the person that you are, they all kind of roll into each other sort of in a cyclical way. But yeah, things repeat and influence the next thing to the point where things just started repeating themselves in a very seasonal way, you know, because this movie does have to do with seasons a lot as well, that, you know, the choices that you make influence the person that you are and the person that you are, that becomes your life. And then as you're faced with your life and the fact that it will no longer be one day, you're forced with the decisions that you've made and then it just reoccurs over and over. Yeah, we see that play out pretty explicitly in the final scene of the film or the second to last scene where in an original way David Lowry shows oh right kind of a a dark future for Gawain we see him as an individual who has forfeited his honor essentially and has chosen to live the rest of his life in a hollow manner or in a way that he has cheated his way to his prestige and he is uh, essentially uh, a walking dead. He, <laughs> he is completely devoid of joy and of fulfillment. To me, it was him 
showing that he was he had grown, that he learned from his experiences, and he wanted to now be a better person. That was the takeaway for me sure. in, in terms of like the plot. In the original poem, that's all that happens, and they part their ways as friends, and then Sir Gawain is absolved by the Knights of the Round Table upon his return and goes on to live the rest of the stories of legend. But in this film, it cuts to black, so it wouldn't surprise me if in David Lowry's mind, it wouldn't diminish the story at all because we still had the character development of Sir Gawain. And in many cases, you know, in the real world, the good men do get decapitated in the end because that's how life is. You know, you embrace... True. You're Ned Stark and you're high honor and then you just, you lose. That's how you lose. True. Which I think is just as meaningful as the original poem, just in a different way. I don't think you said who played the Green Knight. I briefly mentioned his name. It's Yeah, but not in the context of the fact that he plays. Th- yeah. It's Ralph Ineson, who is a venerated actor by now. Always a standout performance because not just his voice, but he's a man of stature as well. He's a powerful. What else has he been in? He was in The Witch, opposite Katie Dickey as oh, the father. Right. That's right. He's also been in both Game of Thrones and Harry Potter. He's done a lot of bit parts and small roles in many properties. But yeah, Ralph Ineson's great. As we said, Joel Edgerton, incredible. He plays the Lord of the Manor. What a powerful presence that man has. But yeah, I'm glad that even for this brief moment before the Delta variant is sweeping the world again and the movie theaters are open, I'm glad that we got to go see something of worth in the theaters, particularly in the theaters. I wouldn't, unless you have a very amazing sound system and home theater, I wouldn't really recommend watching this at home. But I mean, I would if that's your only way to see it, but you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. And I'm looking forward to some other things coming out in the future. What's A24's next big venture, Lamb? I don't know if that's next, but they're definitely now really kicking up the marketing on Lamb. And I am so excited for that movie. (laughs) That movie looks crazy. Perfect A24 fair. Big like Antichrist vibes, which I'm down to see. But this film so far is my pick of the year, even though it's been pretty sparse. But across all platforms and now with theaters back in service, The Green Knight for me has been probably of the last year as well. Just outstanding. As someone who loves art house and fantasy and acapella scores, (laughs) (laughs) this, this struck all my fancies tickled me pink and i think especially if theaters go down again you know knock on wood please don't please don't uh this this will be like film of the year for me probably similarly to how in 2019 we were talking about midsummer and lighthouse a lot this is definitely something to remember and something that i think gabe and i were briefly talking afterward sort of in jest like why can't all movies just be made like that like where it's good filmmaking, the writing and the dialogue is on point, but not on the nose. And it's very original. Even with a story like this that has been around for five or six centuries, like, why can't all movies be adapted to be this good and of quality? Because and... they're not a smash profit, you know? Yeah, it's just sort of sad that, like, I kind of like the idea. I heard it kind of said that, like, some of these auteur filmmakers are being taken up by you know, Disney and Marvel, and they kind of do a one for me, one for you kind of thing. So you do get some originality with some filmmaking in the big blockbusters sometimes. Like, it rears its head out, and you're just like, oh, wow, that was a very good moment Yeah, in the midst of the movie. (laughs) It's brief. But the whole movie sort of gets overtaken by the spectacle of it. and The schlock. So that's why I think, you know, we really adore when something is so original and just has 
so much flavor to it. But I'm just really thankful that we got to see it. I'm excited to see more things. Yeah, let's keep the theaters open. Yeah. David Lorre, thank you for making that. Yes, David. He's he for me is now entered the upper echelon of like A24 <laughs> aristocracy. <laughs> Uh, best of luck out there, the cult podcast listeners. Be safe, be healthy. Alf, Dukes. Mom. <laughs> My mom doesn't listen to the cult podcast. Feels bad, man. You don't even listen to the cult podcast. <laughs> I live it. <laughs> it's true. Oh, man. You going to see Suicide Squad this weekend? I'd like to. They're saying Warner Brothers is back. <laughs> and they're out here ready to go. Yeah, they got one good filmmaker and they gave him carte blanche to finally do anything. Save know. us, James Gunn. <laughs> <laughs>